You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Our desire is to honor and share the best parts of the Christian contemplative traditions so that this collective wisdom might serve the flourishing of humanity, all beings, and all of creation. My name is Ben Kesey, and I lead the development team at the Center for Action and Contemplation. I want to thank all of you who are generous donors, giving freely and cheerfully to make this work possible. If you've been impacted by these podcast conversations and are inspired to invest in the future of CAC's mission and work, twice per year, we invite your financial support. To contribute, go to cac.org donate to make a gift. Thank you so much. Greetings, uh, I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome, everyone. Jim and I are so excited to be launching Season 2 of Turning to the Mystics. In this podcast, Jim uses the ancient practice of Lexio to help us turn to Christian and other mystics for trustworthy guidance on what matters most. In this episode, Jim will be introducing us to the mystic we'll be turning to in Season 2, St. Teresa of Avila, a 16th century Spanish Christian mystic. Then we'll be returning to the practice of Lexio using Teresa's text, The Interior Castle. So Jim, can you let us know why you chose Teresa as our second mystic? Well, I would say first, I... I, I... I, be, I began this series with Thomas Merton. I chose him first because uh, one, he was my teacher at the monastery, and also he's he's contemporary. He speaks our language, and therefore he's uh, ex- more accessible to us in terms of, of a mystic teacher in the Christian tradition. And then, having finished this the series on Merton. I thought Teresa would be a good one to follow, do next, because one, it would be good to move from man, um, Thomas Merton to a woman mystic. And also, uh, Teresa, because she's one of the mystics that has had a very kind of uh, deep effect on me in my life personally. And um, therefore, she's just really a, a good resource to have in terms of spiritual, trustworthy spiritual guidance and following this path. So I'm, I'm choosing her next for those reasons. And now will you give us a bit of an introduction into who Teresa was and the book of hers that you're going to focus on and explore with us? That's right. Yeah, I'm going to begin first then, as we'll do with each of these mystics, by a brief little biographical sketch of who she was historically to help us begin to understand who she is spiritually. So very briefly then, her, who she was in time. Um, that Teresa uh, was born in uh, 1515 um, in uh, Spain, where she lived her uh, life until her death, until, and, 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 at, in 1582, at 67 years of age. As a young woman, she entered the uh, cloistered Carmelite convent of the Incarnation, 
just outside the medieval walled city of Avila and lived there as a cloistered nun. And in her life as a cloistered nun in the monastery, she began to experience uh, graces in prayer, like being drawn into these more mystical states of uh, Christ consciousness or oneness with God in prayer. And um, uh, for example, she, she writes in her life, her spiritual memoir, that she was at one point caught up in a political uh, conflict that was going on in the monastery. The nuns were divided and conflicted over something. While she was in prayer, she heard an inner voice, God saying to her, Teresa, why are you concerned about such things? Seek me. And so she records a series of moments like this where she was drawn into this very deep state. And so when the sisters there in the community sense this depth in her, they ask her if she, under obedience really, to write like, help us, help us. So maybe you can help us to experience what you're experiencing. And so she wrote her life, her spiritual, the memoir. She wrote a second volume called The Way of Perfection, in which she further refines how to discern um, these deepening states of consciousness, grace consciousness and prayer, and how to cooperate with them and so on. And um, then toward the end of her life, um, she again was asked under obedience to write a, a third book on prayer, Union with God in Prayer, which is the book we're going through now, The Interior Castle. So it's significant because uh, it's toward the end of her life, so she's at the heights of her powers, really, as a mystic and as a kind of a well-seasoned mystic teacher in the Christian tradition. And so The Cloud of Unknowing is one of the great literary masterpieces, uh, classical works in the Christian these, in this Christian lineage. Also at the time, this was going on right around the time of the writing of the castle, is she was also feeling called to uh, bring about a reform of the Carmelite order that she was in, and basically as a return to a more primitive observance of prayer, uh, poverty, and simplicity. And this is where she then asked St. John of the Cross, who was just newly ordained at the time, to join her so that he could reform the men, the friars, the Carmelite priests, and she would reform the sisters. And of course, John of the Cross went on himself to, is himself a great mystic teacher. And so they were close friends in real life, but also they're two great teachers who live side by side, each with their own teaching, their own gifts to, to offer us. And um, so that, that's, um, that's Teresa. That's her life. She died then in, in, in the midst, really, of founding one of the reformed houses. She was in the midst of forming these foundations in Spain around Avila. And um, that's the life of Teresa, historically. Um, in terms of the text, the interior castle, uh, to say that what we're also doing here um, is we're kind of modeling a contemplative Lexio Divina. That is, we're kind of modeling how to read a mystic, which would really be a way to model how to read scripture. With this idea by learning how to read a mystic can help us to learn how to live. And uh, 
So we kind of walk through it as a spiritual path or the reading itself as a kind of a prayer. And so what I'd like to do is share with you and kind of carefully walk through uh, chapter one, how, how she starts her book, The Interior Castle. She begins. While I was beseeching our Lord today that he would speak through me since I could find nothing to say and had no idea how to begin to carry out the obligation laid upon me by obedience. A thought occurred to me, which I will now set down in order to have some foundation on which to build. I'd like to start there. <clears> that Teresa realizes that she's being asked to speak of something that's very hard to talk about. It's not hard to talk about because it's theoretical or academic. But it's hard to talk about because of the intimacy of the subject matter. Because the subject matter really is the intimacy of our own subjectivity being transformed by divine love into the love of God. And that, that, that kind of the radicality of that, the intimacy of that, how do we then find a language then to convey and to explore such things in a helpful way? And so she's kind of pondering, like, how do I do this? How can I find some overarching metaphor under the auspices of which we might be able to communicate with each other about this? I began to think of the soul as if it were a castle made of a single diamond or a very clear crystal. So what dawns on her as a searching for this language is uh, to begin to speak of the mystery, the nature of our own soul. And by her soul, by our soul, she means what our faith reveals us to be by God, creating us in the image and likeness of God. So our soul then is our God-given godly nature is our soul. It's our soul is who we are because God says so. So that the, the, the real issue here, as you're starting to raise right at the very beginning, is that our sense of our of ourself, our identity, is much richer than what we tend to think of today as our identity, because we tend to think of ourselves as psychologically, like who we are in our personality, who we are, story, and we are that. But it's through that finite personality that we're awakened in a faith consciousness to the mystery of our ultimate identity in God, which is our own given godly nature, which is our soul. And she starts there by reflecting on this. And the mystic in being awakened um, in, in this mystical consciousness, the consciousness of, mystic, of the mystic then transcends the cultural setting in which the awakening occurs. But in order to share with us what they've been awakened to, they draw upon the images and language of the culture in which they're living. And since she was living in Spain where there were castles, she comes up with the metaphor of the castle. And so she has a soul then created by God in the image and likeness of God. She likens it to a castle and to a castle of uh, great immensity and elegance that's made of a of single diamond or crystal. So the soul now, this lovely kind of spatial metaphor, 
that our soul is this vast, spacious, crystalline castle as a soul. And in this castle, she says, there are many rooms, just as in heaven there are many mansions. And I'd like to reflect on this. She's now comparing the soul to heaven. If we think of heaven as where God lives, the Our Father who art in heaven, if heaven is where God lives, and she says it's revealed to us that God, whom the whole universe cannot contain, is inside of us. The kingdom of heaven is within you. Since God creates a soul in God's image and likeness, and since God creating the soul in God's image and likeness lives inside of us in the depths of our own soul, then we are God's heaven. See, if heaven is where God lives, then your soul is God's heaven. And we might say then, that the soul is the landscape of heaven in miniature. That is, if we, by, by studying the nature of the soul, we can learn the landscape of the celestial fulfillment that is our destiny, which is the infrastructure of the intimacy of our own soul created in the image and likeness of God. I'd like to suggest something else here about the mystic. And she's going to begin to touch on this fairly early on in the book. As we, as we listen to this language, we're not used to thinking about ourselves like this. We're not. And we can see how our present society lets us down in a way. You know, we're given a scientific worldview, an historical worldview, a political worldview, an economic worldview, but a spiritual worldview. And so this is kind of, the kind of the classical spiritual worldview of contemplative Christianity, really of the Christian vision, reality, Christ consciousness. And so already to sit with her, we're being healed of an impoverished understanding of ourselves, exiled from this God-given godly dignity and stature of, of who we are. The innate value, really it's the innate value of what it means to be a person. Now, if we think carefully over this, sister, the soul of the righteous man is nothing but a paradise in which, as God tells us, he takes his delight. For what do you think a room will be like, which is the delight of a king so mighty, so wise, so pure, so full in all that is good? I can find nothing with which to compare the great beauty of a soul. So since... God then is creating our soul in the image and likeness of God. And since God is cho freely choosing then to dwell in the interiority of our own soul, then we're invited to reflect. He says, she says, if we think very carefully about this, sisters. And this is why this calls for meditation. This calls, this is why we can't skim read the mystic. This is how we have to sit very, very quietly and kind of let this soak in, like walk with it, reflect upon it, try to internalize this. Like, what, what, would, what, what are the far-reaching implications about what she's telling me about myself? And if I could learn to see myself in this way, what effect would that have on me? The way I see myself and how would it affect, since everyone around me as a soul, 
How would it affect how I see everyone else around me? So already we can start to feel the beginnings of the transformative effects of the contemplative lexio, this inviting us into this broader, more spacious, more richer understanding of ourselves. I can, she's, I can't think of anything to compare the soul to. It's, it's incomparable. It's incomparable. In fact, however acute our intellects may be, they will no more be able to attain to a comprehension of this, that is, our soul, to an understanding of God. For as he himself says, he created us in his image and likeness. Now, if this is so, and it is, there is no point in fatiguing ourselves by attempting to comprehend the beauty of this castle. In other words, what she's saying here, she's raising a deep question about self-knowledge. Because if we think of ourselves in these terms, the implication is that we are a mystery to ourselves. We're a mystery to ourselves because our finite comprehension and ego consciousness is infinitely less than the infinite mystery of the depths of our own soul. That we're, we're we, we, I put it, you can't get the ocean into a thimble, but you can drop the thimble into the ocean, and we are that thimble. So we cannot gather up the immensity of God giving herself away in and as the majesty of our own soul. Our little mind can't grasp it. But what we can't grasp, we can realize if we surrender to it. That we can intimately realize the intimate immediacy of what we cannot comprehend, which is spiritual understanding. And you can feel then in the rhythm of her voice and in the kind of, also when you read her out loud to yourself, you get this feeling, the kind of quiet confidence that she has, that she's not saying this on hearsay, you know, she's speaking out of the depths of what she kind of vividly knows for herself to be true. And she's sharing with it this with us so that we might know it too in a kind of clearer way and set out on this path she's inviting us to follow. She then says, as he himself says, for he created us in his image and likeness. Now, this is so, and it is. There's no point in fatiguing ourselves by attempting to comprehend the beauty of this castle. For though it is his creature, and there is therefore as much difference between it and God as between creature and creator, the very fact that his majesty says it is made in his image, is made in his image means that we can hardly form any conception of the soul's great dignity and beauty. I'd like to reflect on this subtle point. When she speaks this way about the divinity of ourself, with the ma the, the God pouring herself out or presencing herself in and as the very presence of our soul, she's not saying that we're God. Because she is also simultaneously asserting the mystery of creation, that the distance between the infinite creator and the finite creature is an infinite distance. That is to say, if God were to cease loving you into the present moment at the count of three. At the count of three, you'd vanish completely. For you're nothing, absolutely nothing, apart from the infinite love of God pouring itself out and giving itself away as the very reality of yourself, others, and all things. And this is the great paradox about the soul, about ourselves, is that our very nothingness without God makes our very presence to be the presence of God. 
And, uh, and so this is the mystery of the soul. And this great mystery then is also the mystery of all things. We saw this in Thomas Merton too with the cosmic dance, the world and time are the dance of the Lord in emptiness. So this is the divinity of all created things, that the world is God's body and that it bodies forth the love that utters it into being. But the difference between us and stones and trees and stars, that we're empowered by God to know that, which is the soul, which is what it means to be a spiritual being, which is, which is religious experience, habituated as faith. And so our destiny then to be this creature, without God we are nothing, but our nothingness is the presence of God. We're endowed by God with the capacity to realize that, which is our awakening. She's inviting us to the, the, the essence of the good news, the gospel of faith. And then in awakening to it, we're called to surrender to it because love is never imposed, it's always offered. There has to be a free mutuality of self-donation um, for in the mutuality of self-donating love or destiny is fulfilled. And so here, and, and, and so this is just uh, the first two paragraphs of the whole book. And it helps you to see, um, how should we put it, kind of the, she's, she's one of these people for whom every word counts. Every word counts. It's endlessly evocative. And we can sit with it and sit with it and sit with it. And we sense that it's beautiful. And it's beautiful because it's true. And it's really the gift and the mystery of God love being poured out as our breath of our breath, life of our life. See, the divinity of ourself and our nothingness without God. And this is, we might say, is uh, experiential self-knowledge born of faith. Then she says, It is no small pity and should cause us no little shame that through our own fault we do not understand ourselves or know who we are. And that's our estrangement. That we are sadly exiled from the God-given godly nature of every breath and heartbeat, each passing moment of our life. Jesus said, you have eyes to see and do not see. There's your God-given capacity to see your God-given godly nature and you don't see it. And that blindness, that estrangement, the Buddha called it ignorance. That estrangement is the source of all of our sorrow. It's the source of all of our fear. It's the source of all of our confusion. And so she's inviting us to understand the origins of suffering, this kind of primordial confusion about in our exiled state from this infinite generosity of love that alone is ultimately real. And so uh, she then says, I am now going to take you, and I'm now going to paraphrase, I'm now going to take you, I'm going to invite you to join me, and I'm going to lead you into a kind of guided tour through the mystery of your own soul into the innermost center, hidden center of your soul, where God's waiting for you in there to give you a big hug, see, like homecoming, homecoming like this. And then she says, which is another subtle point, she says, but how can you lead us into our own soul, since as you just said, we are our soul? She says, understand, there's different ways to understand what it means to be in a place. So I would say for us here right now, I'm in my room right here in my home saying this to you. And you're sitting in your home or in your car, wherever you're listening to this. So each of us, we are where we are. 
but the degree to which and the extent to which we're, we're aware of and sensitive to. The depth and beauty of what's being shared here varies greatly from person to person. So now she starts raising that she raises the question about many rooms again, like in my father's house there are many mansions. Only now she's speaking of mansions as gray states of consciousness, which refer to qualitative degrees to which we are aware of and responsive to the God-given godly nature of ourselves, others, and all things. And what helps me to see this, like to visualize this, is imagine the soul is a vast circular spaciousness. And uh, there are seven um, like targets going out, like circles, concentric circles going out. So the, the outermost circle, the first mansion, is the initial state when we're first awakened to the interiority of our life. And that's where we're going to start in our podcast or in our reflections. Like how, she says, there are some people that don't even know they have a soul. So there's the centrifugal force of the momentum of life spins them out to the edge of themselves. And they get so caught up in it. It never dawns on them. If my life has an outside, it must have an inside. And then she says, but what's that like to find your way into the first mansion of your own soul? And she then helps us discern the signs of the way of the beginner, first mansion. And then she talks about the transformations that happen there, the graces that happen there, the limits that happens there, which then leads into the second grace state, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, and then the finally the seventh one, which is, she describes as one of these nuptial mystics which he speaks of as being married to God. See, so we might say, to use this kind of nuptial imagery, see, there, there are some people who know about God. There are other people who have a kind of distant uh, relationship with God. There are other people who are drawing more intimate with God, and they start dating God. Other people that are dating God, God proposes, and they get engaged to God. And then she says, it's possible to be married to God because from all eternity, God is married to you. And that marital consummation of the kingdom realized in the depths of yourself is the mystic way. And she's inviting us to proceed in that way. I'd like to end here then with a little story I share about myself. Uh, how I first got into Teresa when I was at the monastery with Merton. And... Uh, when I was going to him for spiritual direction, he led me first, St. John of the Cross first. I was just drawn to that first for some reason and, and con continued to be Teresa to all these people. And um, so I, I started reading Teresa in the interior castle. So when I went in for my session of spiritual direction, I was 18 years old, maybe 19 at this point, and right out of high school. So I came in to see Merton for my session, and I had my copy of the Interior Castle with me, and I had little bookmarks in it. So, so I told Merton, I said, you know, I'm reading the Interior Castle, and um, reflecting on these different mansions. And I said, you know, uh, very serious, like sincere about it, I said, you know, I said, the way I see it, I'm in the fourth mansion. And then I told him, but if you think I'm only in the third, I want you to be honest with me. I can handle it. And he told me, it's none of your damn business what mansion you're in. He said, in and interesting, the spiritual life should free us from a preoccupation with ourselves, And all too often just becomes another way of being preoccupied with ourselves. I wonder what mansion I'm in. 
He said, however, understood in the right way, it's immensely helpful. Why? See, how can I begin to comprehend what's happening to me? In the poverty and simplicity of the sustained attentiveness infused with love in my prayer and in my life. And that's extremely helpful. Because of the subtlety of it, we can be getting in our own way without even realizing it. And what we think is an obstacle is actually the signs we're going deeper. And so this is trustworthy guidance in this ever deeper transformative state toward divine union, which is a foretaste on this earth of our eternal destiny in heaven. And also as a kind of a ministry to the world that our, the, the anonymity of this path in prayer touches the whole world in ways that we don't understand. And so this then is our work. This is what we're going to be looking at together. And the, the modality that we're working in, these little 30-minute snippets, it really doesn't allow us to try to even begin to do justice to the castle. We can't do that. Uh, the online course, CAC, gives a more uh, an opportunity for my kind of extended look at that, which can be pursued further. So what I'm going to be doing instead is taking soundings. As we're going to start with the first mansion, I'm going to prayerfully walk through a paragraph or two with you to take soundings as something that you can be invited to sit with in meditation for the week and so on. So by the series of soundings, we might start to get a, a sense of attunement with the beauty of um, the castle and also what it would mean to turn to Teresa for guidance and deepening our experience and response to God's presence in our lives. So this then will be our journey we'll be making together. Turning to the mystics will continue in a moment. Jim, thank you for that beautiful introduction. I'm even more excited about what's, what's ahead in this season. Uh, thank you so much. I'm curious to know what Thomas Merton thought of Teresa. Was he, did he, was he a fan? Did he read her? I would say, I mean, this is my sense of Merton. Is, uh, it's what makes him so significant, too. Is that when we, when we read Merton, and then we go say, read Teresa, what we're really doing is we could, we realize his, his voice is echoing. The mystic voice uh, echoes in the in the in the teachings of saints and mystics down through the ages, back to Christ spending whole nights alone in prayer. It's a lineage of um, an an ongoing continuum, a mystical consciousness into each age. And so Thomas Merton is kind of embodying, and I think Richard Rohr with the Living School. This is what the Living School is all about. It's the embodiment of the old beauty ever ancient ever new. It's, it's, it's the perpetual newness of the, of the mystical wisdom of the Christian tradition in concert with the mystical wisdom of all the world's great religions. So in that sense, he was very aware of her. He spoke highly of her, her kind of down-to-earth pragmatic clarity and so on and so on. In that sense, he, was just, he had a familiarity with these people. Yeah. Mm. So what I'm hearing in that, Jim, if uh, someone's listened to your first season on Thomas Merton, even though Teresa was uh, 16th century, that there'll be a lot of resonance and reverberation of the same 
Yes, sense, but there's so. something to be aware of here, I think. Mm-hmm. Let, let's say that um, we're, we're, we're turning to these mystics and we want to pursue it on our own further. And so we get a copy of the Interior Castle or St. John of the Cross, Dark Knight of the Soul, I mean, whatever, we're Eckhart. When you read Teresa, these other mystics, you need to realize that although Merton is contemporary, Teresa was, isn't contemporary. And she's writing out of the cultural milieu of, of her time. And therefore, she'll say certain things about women, comparing women to men in terms of we women were weaker, we women are more unstate, we women are more, you know, she make, she'll make comments like that. She makes a lot of comments about demons and spiritual beings and so on. So we need to realize that we're, we're, we're listening to her kind of cultural assumption, assumptive horizon and we're critiquing it in the view of our own assumptive horizon. So 500 years from now, someone's going to read Richard Rohr, Thomas Merton, going, I don't get this guy. You know, like, where's he, like, where's he come? Why would he say something like that? You know, how, it's so weird. Mm-hmm. So you need to kind of uh, just be sensitive to that. And, um, but to know that really the, the kind of the, the purity of it kind of echoes within those cultural assumptions. They're not... They're not co-opted by them, but they're innuendos around the edges of it. And we need to kind of, and it's high, I think it's good to see that. It's good to be, um, have more than one layer, like a sense of history and the language of an epoch and so on. But you just need to just take that in stride and ride with it and so on. So that's something to consider because it can be discouraging otherwise because you have to be willing to be humble and go very, very slow I, su- I often suggest to people that they read it, and what gets to you is the one-liners. She just says something, you want to underline and write it out. And a lot of stuff in between, you don't know what she's talking about. But if you keep reading it over and over and over, you start connecting the dots, and, and it does a number on you. You, know, start, you start soaking it in, and you start to internalize this, and that takes time to do mm-hmm. that. And Jim, that really points to... Uh this ongoing nature of being a human being, which is to uh, have the divinity of the soul, but also this this humanity that's in time and contextual and, and even mystics that may have made it all the way to the seventh mansion still had those contextual kind of hangovers. And uh, so we can have compassion yeah, yeah, for that's ourselves. Right. You know, I want to share something, just yeah. to share something. Uh, in, in the book, she has like a little uh, foreword. Right. Here's the foreword to her book. Few tasks, and she's writing this as a Seventh Mansion person. I realize this is just before her death, so she's in full-blown mystical. Few tasks which I've been commanded to undertake by obedience has been so difficult as this present one of writing about matters pertaining to prayer. For one reason because I do not feel that the Lord has given me the spirituality or the desire for it. I don't think I have the grace to do it, and I'm not, I don't care to necessarily want to do it. For another, because for the last three months I've been suffering from such noises and weaknesses in the head that I find it troublesome to write about even necessary business. She had ongoing struggle and health problems, and a lot of the Inquisition was going on, a lot of the politics, she has ongoing health problems, and so she's really struggling under the labor of just everyday realities in her life. 
But as I know, the strength arising from obedience has a way of simplifying things. That's a great statement. Which seem impossible. My will, my will very gladly resolves to attempt this task, although the prospect seems to cause me my physical nature great distress. And I think by obedience, I think she means this. And no matter how difficult something is, if we believe in our heart, God's asking out of it, asking us to do it. That God gives us the strength to do what we can't find within ourselves to do. And it's so touching then that here. So being a, a mystic does not mean you're not don't get sick. Doesn't mean you don't get frustrated. Doesn't mean you're not overwhelmed. It doesn't mean you're still just a human being. But the frailty of human nature no longer has tyranny over your mind and heart. For the very frailty is infused with the love of God sustaining you in your frailty. And I think that's, there's a lot of places in the castle where she talks that way. And she invites us to be that way, too. Yeah, we're, we're, we're a work in progress. Yeah. I did want to talk about, um, because like you say, she can come across a little bit, in, especially in this older version um, of the interior castle, a little, like sounding a bit submissive in that um the way she talks about women and men. But she was actually quite a radical reformer, a leader, and uh, very active in in making big changes within her her setting. Well, let's, let's talk about this, too. You know, part of this, you have to understand, too, part of it has to do with the tradition of the evangelical consuls, the poverty, chastity, and obedience. Because as a religious, she, made, she took a vow of obedience. And uh, so Thomas Merton once in the monastery, he was speaking about one of the stories about the, uh, the desert fathers, the desert mothers. And he said this one monk in the, one of these community of hermits, second, third century, uh, is coming to this spiritual master. And uh, the master takes a stick, takes him out into the desert and puts a stick in the sand. He said, every day under obedience, I want you to come and water this stick. And so every day the hermit takes a little cup of water, walks way out into the desert, and he waters the stick. And said one day he went out to water the stick, and here is a reward for his obedience. It had bloomed it full of roses. Mm. And when I was in the monastery, when we were eating, we all sat with our hood up eating bread and cheese or whatever. And when you were done, you were to scrape your crumbs up off the table. You could either eat the crumbs or put them in your little dish where you wash your wooden spoon. But when the abbot gave the knock to stand, to, we, we, we would process down to the church for chanting after meals. This one monk, it says in the Middle Ages, he, he scraped uh, the crumbs in his hand. He was about to put it in his mouth, and uh, the abbot knocked. So under obedience, he didn't put the crumbs in his mouth. He held them in his hand. He chanted down the cloister walk, went to the church, and came out of the prayers after meal. After, and he opened up his hand to eat the crumbs, and here to reward him, God had turned the crumbs into diamonds. So there's a certain idea about, Merton called it stick-watering obedience, which is not true obedience. He often fought with the abbot. He said, but in the end you have to obey. In the end you have to obey, which is really the death of your own will. The death of your own will. But it doesn't mean at all you're not forthright. It doesn't mean you're not... And she was very much that way. She was, she was no one to fool with. You know what I mean? She knew what she was. She knew what she was about. And so you, we need to understand this obedience language with cultural issues, 
but also understand these mystical, spiritual, evangelical console issues. We need to understand it in the light of like the true obedient person who is so courageously forthright in carrying out the will of God. You know? Could you uh, tell us a little bit about what she was passionate about in her reform? You talked uh, in your introduction about reviving this more primitive observance. And what, what do you mean by yeah, here, that? Here's what, what I mean by my sense of it. Thomas Merton once said in the monastery, he said, you know, all reform of religious faith communities is returning to the, to, the, to the fire of the founder. And the fire of the founder was a person who was utterly consumed by the love of God. So, for example, with the Franciscans, Francis goes into this little church. He has this mystical experience where Christ speaks to him from this crucifix. He takes off his clothes puts on her burlap sack, and goes heading out across the road, see, kind of ravaged by the poverty of God. Someone was so moved when they saw him that way. See. And uh, they, they come up to him and they say, Frank, you know, what, what happened? <laughs> Jesus Christ, <laughs> you were fine yesterday. <laughs> but I, I, I don't know what it is, but when, I'm, when I can tell when I'm near you, I'm near God. And if you don't mind, I'd like to get a burlap sack on. And pretty soon you had hundreds and hundreds of people in perlap sacks walking up the road to be with Frank. See? See? It's the same with Benedict in the fifth century. He was a hermit in a cave. He had one of these experiences. And he kind of came out, was kind of radiant with this. They saw that in him. See? And they said, you know, Ben, my God, were you smoking? And they're like, what's going on? <laughs> Jesus Christ. And uh, I, 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 can I, do you mind if I move in a cave next door? And pretty soon you had a whole mountain full of people wanting to live near Ben. And he said, I better write a rule for these guys. Mm -hmm. He goes to his word processor, rule of St. Benedict. And so someone said, you know, it worked fine until the Franciscans started. It worked fine until the Benedictines started. And there are forces of empire. There are forces that institutionalize the original fire. Now that, that transformative metanoia, the radicality of the gospel, takes place in the heart of each person. I do that, you do that within the community. But some people are called to do it in the transformation of social structures. They recognize, mm -hmm. they feel a prophetic call to engage in the transformative work, but returning to what? See, for ultimately it's to Christ. It's referring to this original, uh, the original orthodoxy, Richard is love. And then, so uh, that, that's, that's, that's really what the reform is. So, she, so, so what she was really adamant about was then, in her role as a cloistered nun, was a commitment to prayer, because to be a man or woman of prayer, to, to uh, poverty, an identity with the, identification with the poor of the world, and spiritual poverty. I'm bereft without God. I'm nothing, absolutely nothing. In simplicity. And that's what she was adamant about. See how to, and so mm -hmm. she, when she wrote the reform for the rule, she, she wrote a, a rule to kind of embody that trend. And to this day, I was when I got to go to Avila twice with Carolyn Mays, incredible experience. And the, 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 the convent that she founded inside the walled city of Avila, there's still nuns living in there, following the rule that she mm -hmm. wrote. And they're still and they're still chanting wow. the office seven times a day. It's an anonymous, hidden, mystical, contemplative life. Like Merton lived to Gethsemane, and so you have the Carthusians, mm -hmm. and you have the Camaldoli, and you have the poor Clares, you have the Carmelite, 
And you see also these traditions in Buddhism and Hinduism. It's really an enigma in the world. This, the radicality mm. of a hiddenness that deeply moves the hearts of people, where they're kind of moved to go on pilgrimages to be there. T.S. Eliot says in Four Quartets, in Little Getting to Kneel Where Prayer Has Been Valid. And so she was so committed to that. And so I, what, I'm, what we're speaking of now, how do we live it in the world? See, how do I, how do you give ourselves over to this poverty and to this, um, to this love and kind of obediential fidelity to it? And that's how Teresa, I think, speaks to us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jim, what was it like to be in Avila? I was very moved by it. I, I, um, it's, uh, you know, it's so, uh, it's so mysterious to be where a mystic lived. I mean, it really is, because it's like she was radically faithful to something she didn't see coming, like this, and she surrendered to it, and uh, it just broke wide open for her, like this. Uh, when I was in Avila, uh, we got to go to her cell in the monastery where she lived, and each nun had their own little cell, and she was also having visions, and so a story of Teresa <laughs> is that... Uh, She's uh, in her cell. You're right there in the cell where this happened. And um, the Christ child appears to her. And her name in religion was Sister Teresa of Jesus. That's the name that she took, Sister Teresa of Jesus. And, um, and so she turns and she sees this child in her room. And the child, who's Jesus, says to her, who are you? She says, I'm, I'm Teresa of Jesus. Who are you? He said, I'm Jesus of <laughs> Teresa. She says yeah. stuff like, you know, this this kind of like this, oh, wow. like she's so, you know, <laughs> you, you feel the authenticity of what she says, the depth from which it comes inside of her. And that's what she lived, yeah. Mm. And what, what was it like for you to be in that It was cell? very, I was moved by it. I, I got to kneel in the confessional where John of the Cross heard her confession. And um, mm. to be with her, I saw, it's a facsimile, they have the copy of the interior castle. It was first draft, handwritten. She read off amazing, per- wow. absolutely stunning. Like a text, you know, you're sitting looking at this text, it just came pouring out of her. Like, that. so kind of amazed me. And um, I saw the room she died in. Uh, you could sit in the doorway, they had it roped off. You could see the bed that she died in. And uh, it was mm. just, uh, you know, like the, like the holiness of the world. Like the, in Celtic tradition, they talk about thin places, you know. And it's just places mm-hmm. where the divinity shines bright because of the radicality of the person who lived there and changed the world. See? Yeah, I was, I was mm-hmm. very moved by it. I was so grateful to get to go there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think hearing about her life in combination with um, reading this book and understanding the Seventh Mansions is both inspiring but also challenging because the deeper she gets into the mansions, um, she doesn't disappear from the world the more she moves out with radicality into the world to reform the world towards the love she's experiencing internally. It's true, and, and I think she did that uh, consistent with her vocation, that she moved out into the world, but to found cloistered monasteries where people never left, you know, and where she preferred to be because she didn't want to leave either. And so she was, same with Merton in his hermitage, you know, when he went to Asia and then he died. And not only did he live in cloistered silence in the monastery, but then he became a hermit, you know, in the woods at the monastery. 
So she went out into the world and touched the world in fidelity to this solitude. But the point is, though, we do that according to our vocation. And so what she's asking us to do in the radicality of this prayer, which is really our poverty, in the presence of God, deeply accepted, deeply surrendered to, then it kind of transforms and radicalizes the way we're present to our husband or a wife or a little boy or a little girl or the, the neighbor next door or to the pandemic or to the, you know, it kind of radicalizes. It's a light that transcends the world that radicalizes our, our committed presence in the world, which is how Christ mm-hmm. lived. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she, she, Ends with the with a question on the Olivet yes she Lions, does she, she which is very nice. she gets she gets to the very end this this is sublime state of being married to God and then she says for such a person who's come to this she said there's only one question left how can I be helpful and uh, that's how it's a great way to end she also says she says you know what we need to pour our hearts out to the to the to the beauty of the broken world that Christ walked in and came to be with, the brokenness of the of people in the world. And she says, when we pray for the world, sisters, we need to be careful not to have some kind of cosmic prayer for the world. It has to do with how you treat the person you eat next to every day. We have to always keep concretizing mm. the path and the, and the intimate edges of the relational realities that we're all living in. See, how do I treat this person and then how do I treat myself see how, how am I present to the mm. preciousness of myself and my brokenness and yeah. I did want to unpack a little bit Jim the um, you mentioned the nuptial mystics and um, for those of us who haven't grown up Catholic um, this idea might be new and this idea of being married to God in in others um, denominations might have a bit of a more of an icky feel yes. to it so <clears throat> You know, in the, in the in the Torah and the prophets, the Torah in the Old Testament, there's the Song of Songs. See, and in the Song of Songs, it's very erotic imagery see, of uh, the person going out and becoming God's lover, and God loves Israel. I guess so. It takes it takes the, it takes marriage as a kind of a sacrament, as a sacramental sign for the ways in which God is communes with us physically, emotionally, in the totality of ourself. And so, so in the light of that, which in Judaism is really the deep respect for family and for marriage and the holiness of married life and so on. So the mystics and some of this, the, the nuptial mystics are the mystics when they try to search for words that could best convey what they were experiencing in the presence of God. They saw it as being married to God. And so they speak of spiritual mm-hmm. betrothal. That is this phase of this kind of like being engaged to God. And then this married state of, of uh, divine union. Or divine union. And so that's so really it's a biblically based metaphor for the holiness of human intimacy as a sacrament of the intimacy of God's loving communion with us, like this, you know, which is mm. eternal. Yeah. That's really helpful. Thanks, Jim. I just wanted to uh, help people understand the version of the book. What what version of who 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 wrote or yeah, translated yes. the version? Yeah, I, I, I use two versions. I have two. There's two. They're all readily available. 
they'll be told about this too. One is by Allison Peers, P-E-E-R-S, one I read in the monastery. It has a nice little introduction to it. He goes to each of the mansions and then kind of lays it out in paperback. And the other one is, um, it's a three, there's a three-volume set on Teresa uh, put out by the Institute of Carmelite Studies, which is in Washington, D.C., ICS Publications, Institute of Carmelite Studies. And the uh, second mm -hmm. volume um, is the volume that has the interior castle in it. So sometimes I'll be referring to the ICS translation, but almost always I'll be using pure just because I'm used to it. It's one I've read all my life and I'm just mm -hmm. comfortable with it. But I've also I've very much also used and like very much. Um, and sometimes if you really want to get into it, you can look at translations. So you could take Pierce and ICS translation, a Mirabai Stars translation, and do a cross kind of reference on how these texts like that so so but those are the two that i'm using thanks jim and um peers the, the language is a little old-fashioned um poetic uh, and beautiful but mirabai star who's a friend yeah. of the cac um she tries to translate into more contemporary language so if people want a different language that's exactly that's right a, a that's good right suggestion. I, I didn't read I, I i don't to be honest about myself i haven't really read anything contemporary in 10 years i don't read anymore and I read these texts over and over in commentaries, but I just don't read anything. And so I, I'm just immersed in this, I guess, because um, I'm old-fashioned and, and, and romantic <laughs> at heart. And I just kind of I walk around with it. And, and, uh, it's ballast. It keeps me afloat. keeps me upright in the water. No, but it, it is really good to do that. You can look at a more a, a contemporary voice. And by the way, uh, 10 years or 50 years, someone will write another one. Because we're always incarnating it in each. That's how we. That's how we do this, really. Yeah. So, yeah, that that, that might be a nice practice for some people is to do a cross trans. Just like when you do deep Bible study, too, you look at the different translations with commentary. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, our wonderful producer Corey always puts a transcript of these podcasts in the podcast notes. So, uh, the the reading will be in the transcripts, and and they're. Beautifully designed as well. They're a real gift to, to anyone listening to the podcast. So look for that there. Um, and Jim, the format will be similar or the same as what you've done with Thomas Merton, where it's a Lexio that's practice. Right. And I'll, I'll, but that's read. right. I'll, I'll, I'll begin by um, selecting a passage. I'll slowly read the passage. Then I'll prayerfully walk through the paragraph, the people kind of sharing what I see in it writing them what they might see in it, like this kind of prayerful immersion in this kind of sounding, what you saying. And then I, then I always end then with a way to pray, how to translate this into a way to pray, either as reflective prayer, Alexio, and then we'll see as we move in toward the fourth mansion, how that starts becoming a wordless contemplative prayer. And then we'll do a sitting. And so each one will follow that same kind of liturgical format. You know. Wonderful. Well, they've been a real gift. And I just want to encourage people that uh, this is a, a unique kind of podcast that um, I found it helpful to listen to each Lexio more than once up to, you know, every day of the week um, until the next one comes out. So and it tends to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And I hear things I didn't hear the first time. And 
It's really yeah. helpful. I think it's, you know, I think in that sense, it's it's um, it's like poetic. Do I mean the, like you read Mary Oliver, T.S. Whoever the Emily Dickinson, and it just oh, every time you go through it again, there's another layer that comes up at you, and uh, and and scriptures like that also. So yeah, it's really that's that that is lexio. See, that's the real, the word. That's the living word. Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm, yeah. Absolutely. And I really feel with um, Alexio like this with uh, Teresa, you, you'll be going through each of the seven I haven't decided. I think, I, I think what I'm through. going to do, um, I, again, there's, there's disparity between the time available and the size of the castle. I, my plan at this point is to, in the very first one, s s speak of the first three mansions. And the first three mansions are kind of where um, it's it's really the life of initial phases of of interior conversion, and um, a life of uh, moving towards psychological spiritual maturity. And then the the listener is invited to listen to that. Like, where am I with this? Then, then the fourth mansion I'll spend more time on because then that it starts to become more overtly mystical. And how can we learn to dis like be discerning within ourselves? that. Merton once said in the monastery, he was speaking to John of the Cross, but it applies to Teresa. He says, um, and by the way, an interesting thing about Teresa is a lot of these mystics, they don't start at the beginning. So St. John of the Cross, for example, he he's assumes you're well-seasoned in Lexio in daily life, and so on. And um, uh, Eckhart's this way, too. It kind of assumes a certain uh, kind of being acclimated. He says this is for wise soul, you know, for wise and learned souls. Teresa is so good, she starts at the beginning. Matter of fact, she starts before the beginning, even before you knew you had a soul. And the other, the other book that's like this is Guigo, A Ladder of Monks, and Lexio. They start at the very beginning. So that's another reason Teresa is very helpful. That way, the, the, the holiness of the beginner, uh, the efficaciousness of that. And then how to look for the signs that were being quietly led into more wordless, modeless ways of oneness with God. So you may spend a little more time on four, yeah, mentions yeah, exactly. four to seven, yeah, yeah. unpacking them yeah, exactly. a little and, more slowly. And I'm not going to try to cover a lot of ground. I mean, I would defeat the purpose to start talking fast to get all the material in. <laughs> so, but if we can do, <laughs> I call it soundings, that if we can get a taste mm -hmm of it, then yeah. based on our inclinations, we can pursue it on our own and sit with it. and and Because mm -hmm. the idea would be to see that in the beginning, these, these texts are very beautiful, but they're not easy. But once we get acclimated to what they're saying, once we get entirely aligned, then we can start to see the inner consistency of everything they say. And we can develop a certain kind of comfort with the mystics, a certain kind of familiarity mm -hmm. with the mystics, which is a, a great thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, wonderful. Well, it's exciting with Teresa because it, it, these podcasts will be online forever and we can come back um, to her mansions and kind of do a, yeah. a check-in, um, which brings us to the end of the podcast and an important question for me, which is, Jim, which mansion do you think I'm in? I would say... <laughs> <laughs> I would say based on um, the... The, the quality of your presence to me drawing out responses that will help the listener 
you're fairly well into such things. I would put it that way, see. And then if you had asked me what mansion do you think I'm in, see, I'd say, yes. pardon me, I don't speak English. <laughs> once I once asked Merton, I asked Merton what mansion I, yeah, I thought he thought he was in. Yeah, yeah. And then he told me, again, it's none of your business. Yes. It's very, it's very interesting about Merton, unlike Teresa. He never, he, in the journals, he's very self-disclosing. But in his classic contemplative writing, New Seeds of Contemplation, he really doesn't, but the depth and beauty of what he says conveys himself there. And, uh, <clears throat> and another thing about the mansions is I think we tend to be habituated in one, but there's a long vapor trail under both. So under stress, we kind of revert back to earlier stages. Then we get little intimations of what's to come. And so it's not some kind of linear strict thing that moves back and forth in a constantly evolving process. And that's, that's closer to what it's like, I think. Because we're right on the edge of spiritual direction here. That's what matters is where mm -hmm. we are at the crest of the wave in our life right now. That's what matters, yeah. Okay, good. Mm -hmm. And since I'm here asking questions on the behalf, on behalf of people listening, where do you think our listeners are in in the mansions? I I, I think I think they're they're the very fact they're listening uh, bears witness that in some way they too are already on the path they're inquiring into, or they wouldn't be drawn to listen. See, and. Um, uh, and that's that's a deep question for each person to ask. Mm -hmm. See, what is it that even uh, prompts me to do this? The way I, the way I put it, when you put out a, a, something like this with a title like this, mm -hmm. how I put it, it draws a certain kind of bird out of the underbrush. See, in other words, it draws out a certain person, see, who feels in the very topic a taste of what they're looking for. Because think how many people heard about this and said, I'll pass on that one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I just, I'm just not there. So even to be drawn to it already bears witness that we're already in some way on this way together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, Jim. I really thought yeah. you were gonna tell me it was none of my damn business, so. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I wanted to be more polite. <laughs> Well, thanks so much for this wonderful introduction to Teresa, St. Teresa of Avila and uh, her interior castle. And I'm very much looking forward to the Lexios to come. And we just uh, also invite people to send in questions along the way. And at the end of this season, we'll have a question and response session. And we look forward to hearing from people. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Centre for Action and Contemplation. Please consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend who might be interested in learning and practising with this online community. To learn more about the work of James Finley, please visit jamesfinley.org. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. 
learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.